Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's grab our Bibles and open up to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I'll read verses 4 through 6 for us now, as we prepare to hear from Rich Sylvester, as he helps us continue in our new annual focus theme titled, Restoration. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I in my father's house have sinned. The book of Nehemiah is an invitation for each of us to join with Jesus in his work of restoration. The book of Nehemiah is an invitation for each of us to join with Jesus in his work of restoration. Let's dive into Nehemiah. But in order to do that this morning, I'd like to point out that we're in a great spot in our reading plan for our passage today. If you haven't grabbed a reading plan to walk yourself through restoration, uh, you should do so. They're available at the information desk and areas in the main foyer. And if you were reading along this week, you found yourself in Ezra chapter 4. But Rich, I thought we're in Nehemiah. But we're going to start for just a minute in Ezra chapter 4, because in Ezra chapter 4, it's going to set the stage for what's happening when we meet Nehemiah in the courts in Susa. Because what's happening is that King Artaxerxes has issued a stop order of all work in Jerusalem. When we read in Ezra chapter 4, we read that the governors of the people surrounding Jerusalem different governors of different cities and towns and regions, they did not like that Jerusalem was being rebuilt. They remembered the Jerusalem of old and they knew that if Jerusalem would be rebuilt, then this would affect their own revenue, their own trade, their own ability to have influence in the region. And so the governors who did not want Jerusalem to be rebuilt, they decided to write King Artaxerxes, the king that Nehemiah works for, they decided to write King Artaxerxes a letter. And it wasn't a letter that was filled with facts, but it was a letter that they were using to try to influence King Artaxerxes' hand. And so they wrote this letter. We can read it in Ezra chapter 4. They said, King Artaxerxes, don't forget about your people Israel. Remember what a rebellious nation they once were. King Artaxerxes, if you let them build this wall, if you let them rebuild your city, they will surely rebel against you. They will stop paying taxes. They won't give you any revenue. This will hurt your kingdom. Oh, King Artaxerxes, don't let Jer Jerusalem be rebuilt. King Artaxerxes received this letter from these governors around the region of Jerusalem and as he read it, he, he decided that he would issue a stop work order. And so he sent a letter back to those governors. And he said, make sure all work stops in Jerusalem. Let me investigate this matter more closely. 
And when the governors received this letter, they went throughout Jerusalem. They went into the cities. They they read the decree of King Artaxerxes. And it says in Ezra chapter 4 that they made sure with force and with violence that the construction in Jerusalem stopped. Many scholars believe that that force and violence included tearing down the walls that were being rebuilt. It included burning the gates of Jerusalem once again, leaving this city that was trying to be restored in ruins again. And it's with this in the background that we begin to read the book of Nehemiah. And we meet Nehemiah, a Jewish man working in the citadel in Susa, working for King Artaxerxes. He is a cup bearer. And as a cup bearer, he would be a handsome man, a cultured man. He would be knowledgeable in court proceedings. He would be able to advise the king on matters if he was asked. And as a cupbearer, he would be incredibly trusted by this king. They would have a tight relationship, a confidant, even a friend. But as cupbearer, Nehemiah also had a very interesting job. His job was to taste the wine before the king did. Because if anyone should poison that wine... Nehemiah was going to die first, and not the king. Can you imagine that role for a minute? That before the king puts any food or drink in his mouth, you eat it, and everybody watches you? And if you die, oh, I guess we shouldn't eat that. And if you live, oh, yeah, let's feast. Is it good, Nehemiah, they might ask? Every time the cup, the king wanted to eat or drink something, Nehemiah put his life on the line for the king. Every time he made sure that the food and the drink was not poisoned so that the king could live. What an interesting role Nehemiah played. Well, as Nehemiah played this role and went about his business, we read here in Nehemiah chapter 1 that Hanani, a brother, a fellow Jew, comes with a report from Jerusalem. Now, I imagine that Nehemiah was very eager to receive this report. I imagine that Hanani, who had ridden over 800 miles to get to this citadel in Susa, this place where King Artaxerxes was hanging out in his winter palace. I love that you had many palaces back then. And this one was his winter palace, known for its architecture and its beautiful gardens. And Hananiah has ridden all the way from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah runs out. I can imagine Nehemiah's excitement. Hananiah, tell me everything. Hanani, tell me, how are the people doing? Is the city being rebuilt? Tell me what the temple looks like. Are they worshiping again there? Oh, is the, are the people coming back? Is the city full of life? Hanani, tell me everything, Hanani. I just can't wait to hear everything about Jerusalem. But Hanani looks down at the ground. His shoulders shrug. I imagine he sighs a deep breath. 
and not being able to look Nehemiah in the eyes. He just says, Nehemiah, it's bad. It's bad, Nehemiah. The gates are burned down. The walls are nothing but rubble. The people live in fear and shame. Nehemiah, the restoration, it's done. It's not happening. As Hananiah gives this report of what's going on in Jerusalem, Nehemiah's eyes fill with tears. Nehemiah begins to weep. Nehemiah is so overwhelmed that his legs buckle underneath him. He sits down where he's heard this report and he cries and he wails and he mourns. There had been so much hope. There had been so much hope in the restoration ever since King Cyrus years ago allowed the Jews to return from exile Ever since then, there had been hope among the Jewish people that Jerusalem would be a wonderful city again, a place where God's name would dwell, a place where they could worship and live together. Nehemiah had never seen Jerusalem. His parents or grandparents had been forced out sometime during the the exile, but he had heard stories of Jerusalem. He had heard stories of what it once was. But now, in this report from his brother, his hopes were dashed. The restoration seemed over. Nehemiah began to pray. He began to fast. He mourned over his sins and the sins of his people. He prayed to God, the God of his people, the one true God who had always kept his word, even if his word meant punishing his people for their sins. Nehemiah prayed through scripture and the promises of God. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed. Looking at the dates at the beginning of chapter 1 and the date at the beginning of chapter 2, Nehemiah prayed for four months. For four months he prayed, fasting on and off, seeking God, confessing his sins. What could he do, he wondered. In the midst of his prayer, God gave him a plan God invited him to join the restoration plan. God invited him to go to Jerusalem to lead the effort to rebuild the walls. In Nehemiah's prayer, we don't hear doubt. We don't hear any pushback. Simply a surrendered heart. A willing spirit. All that he needed now was the king's permission. Now, that little bit, needing the king's permission, was was actually a a big deal. Remember, we learned in Ezra chapter 4 that King Artaxerxes was the very king that had issued a stop order on work in Jerusalem. He was the very king that feared an uprising in Jerusalem. And if 
Nehemiah was to go before the king and ask for permission to go and help rebuild that city, then that could be the end for Nehemiah. King Artaxerxes could consider that treason. He could be thinking that that Nehemiah is part of this uprising that he heard about from these governors. Surely this could be the end of Nehemiah. Yes, it was a big task ahead of him. Every day, Nehemiah put his life on the line for the king, tasting the wine, eating the food. But this time, this time asking the king for permission to leave, to go to Jerusalem, meant so much more. It meant leaving the comfort and the security of the palace for the dangers of life in a ruined city. It meant leaving behind luxury and prestige to instead find ridicule and slander. That instead of sharing in the king's bounty, it meant that when Nehemiah went to Jerusalem, he would use his own money, not the king's, to feed the many people that he would employ. And it meant that the king may kill him right on the spot. But Nehemiah, Nehemiah accepted God's invitation and he spoke to the king. After four months of praying and fasting and planning and listening to God, he put his life on the line to join the work of restoration, to join God's plan for the redemption of the world. Tune in next week to see what happens when he asks. As I considered this this week, I was was struck by this, this courage that Nehemiah had. His response to hearing that the restoration in Jerusalem was going poorly. His courage to go before the king. His courage to go to Jerusalem and to be a part of the restoration plan, I kept wondering, what is it about Nehemiah that enabled him to do this? And as I read and reread chapter one and read through the book of Nehemiah, it just felt like that Nehemiah always had restoration on his mind. Nehemiah was always thinking about God's restoration plan You know, Jesus asked us to be a part of his restoration plan. After Jesus rose from the dead, he met with his disciples and he said, Hey folks, it's your turn. Go, make disciples. In Acts chapter 1, he says to his disciples, I'm leaving, but you must be my witnesses. Nehemiah is an invitation to all of us to join Jesus' work of restoration in the world And I kept wondering, do we, like Nehemiah, have the work of restoration on our minds? Let's look at three ways that Nehemiah had restoration on his mind. The first is, is that he asked. He asked Hanani a question. Now, let's be honest for a minute. It it doesn't really feel like that big a deal, right, to ask a question? 
to ask that question. How are things going in Jerusalem? How are the people doing? But I'm interested in how this question was shaped by the power of restoration. I think about the questions we ask people in our lives. I love to talk to my neighbors across the fence. I love to lean on the fence and ask them how things are going. Hey, I noticed you're planting some new shrubs in the back. What are you doing back there? I noticed that you're uh, cutting your grass a little lower than you used to. Tell me about that. But I don't often ask questions like, hey, how can I be praying for you in your life? I don't often ask questions that are saturated with the idea of restoration. I don't say things like, hey, Ryan, tell me how your marriage is really going. I don't ask things like, hey, Ryan and Monica, do you guys think about spiritual things very often? But what if our questions were saturated with the idea of restoration? Maybe we'd ask our coworker if they think about spiritual things. Maybe we'd show up at church and say, how can I serve? Maybe we'd ask a friend at school if they were willing to come to church with us. Yes, I wonder what our questions might look like to the world around us if restoration was on our minds. So often we ask questions, but they're around sports or gardening or how busy we are. Maybe we're just scared to get to the real questions of restoration work because it means that it may, it may desire something from us. We may have to give something up in order to provide an answer. This week I was thinking about questions. I was thinking about questions saturated in restoration and I, I was headed to a lunch appointment with Dave actually who's sitting right over there. I pulled out of the entrance of church. I took a right down John Tyler and as I drove just a couple hundred yards down the road, there was a man walking his bicycle down the side of John Tyler. Now, you know, you're driving, you're trying to figure out stuff real quick. I was looking, does he have a flat tire? You know, does he need some help? It looked like maybe he was walking with a little bit of a limp. I thought maybe he fell off his bike. He got hurt. Maybe I should stop and ask. I could just simply ask, are you okay? But then I thought, what if I'm late to lunch with Dave? I don't want to make Dave work. And I'm driving my Subaru. We call it the Squeezinator. It's a really small car. I don't think his bike will fit in the back if he needs help. Or what if he needs me to drive him somewhere? And all these, these things went swirling through my head. So you know what I did? I just kept driving. Because asking that question, asking a question meant that depending on the answer, I might have to give something up. It may require something of me. And Nehemiah asked the question, how are the people doing? And when he got the answer, he knew that required action from him. Maybe when we ask questions that are saturated in the work of restoration, it may cost us something. But maybe those are the questions that we need to be asking. Maybe the simplest question is just Jesus how can I join in your work of restoration today Nehemiah asked good questions and Nehemiah also wept 
Nehemiah's heart was broken when he heard what was happening in Jerusalem. You know, it was years earlier, but when King Cyrus signed that decree that let the Jews return to Jerusalem, there was so much hope among the people of Israel, among the Jews. They could rebuild their city. They could rebuild their temple. They could rebuild their altar. They could practice their religion again. They could serve God. They could do these things together. Solomon's words that he wrote rang true when Solomon wrote that the heart of the king is in the hands of God. They felt that and knew that as King Cyrus let them return to Jerusalem. But now it felt like restoration had failed. Jerusalem once again, walls torn down, gates burned to the ground. What things make you weep? What things break your heart? Nehemiah wouldn't be the only one that cried tears over Jerusalem. When we read the gospel story, as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem one more time, as Jesus heads to Jerusalem to walk towards that day when he would be betrayed and tried and put on the cross, he pauses and the gospel writers tell us that he looked over the city of Jerusalem and he wept. He wept for their brokenness. He wept for their rejection they had of him. They wept for the people pushed to the fringes of society, the poor and the outcast, the leper, the single mom begging in the street. He wept over all of it. His heart was broken. But so often my heart, our hearts can be broken over the silliest things, things that are not nearly that um, consequential. We're in a bad mood for days when our college football team loses. We throw a fit when Trader Joe's is out of pumpkin-flavored waffles. The weather isn't perfect for our outdoor gathering. There's traffic on the road. Why won't that driver ahead of me turn left on that blinking yellow? Don't they know the rules? That crush of ours. They don't like us back. That's for you high school kids. You know what I'm talking about. These things that break our hearts and they really shouldn't because the things that should be breaking our hearts are the things that break Jesus' heart. Things of the restoration. A couple of years ago, my wife switched roles. She's a teacher in WJCC. She was a special educator in elementary school. And as one of our kids made it to high school, she decided to move to high school with them. And she was with all the kids in elementary school. Now she'll be with all the kids as they go through high school. And she switched roles. She's now an ESL teacher, English as a second language teacher. Education is as many acronyms as the military, and I don't know all of them. Sometimes she calls herself an ELL teacher, English language learner. I don't know. There's a phrase for everything out there. But she works with kids that are, that are new to the English language, many of them. And, and so often when she comes home from work, I ask her, how was school today? 
and, and tears start dripping down her face. I got a new student, she'd say, an Afghan refugee. They hid in a basement for weeks while the Taliban hunted their parents. They made it out on the last plane. They have nothing. Or she'll say, I'm, I got to know one of my students' stories this week. He watched his family executed in front of him in El Salvador by a gang member. He spent months homeless, traveling, making it to the United States border. He was in a detention center for months. He lives with a distant relative now he doesn't know. And she weeps. And what I admire so much about my wife is then she leans in. She figures out how to accept Jesus' invitation to that work of restoration. And she leans into those things that break her heart. Nehemiah asked great questions because restoration was on his mind. Nehemiah wept for the people of Jerusalem because restoration was on his mind. And Nehemiah did something else. He prayed. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed. He prayed for four months. Nehemiah, if you've noticed, writes in the first person. This is, is his account of what happened. He includes 12 of his prayers in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a prayer warrior. It seems that he was praying all the time. And I'm not so concerned with the length of his prayer, although a four-month prayer is, is a pretty hearty prayer, but I'm very interested in the content of Nehemiah's prayer. I'm very interested in how his prayer shapes up to mine. Because when he hears about this news from Jerusalem, you know what he prays? He prays about how awesome God is. His prayer focuses on the awesomeness of God. And then, after he's done saturating himself in a, in a vision of how great and powerful God is, he prays prayers of confession. He confesses his sins, his father's sins, his people's sins. When's the last time you've confessed the sins of a people? He spends time confessing his sin. And as he examines how great and awesome God is and how much need he is of forgiveness, it reorients his heart. It reorients his mind. It gives him a bigger, better picture of his role in restoration. It brings humility. It brings perspective. And so Nehemiah keeps praying. And you know what he prays after that? He prays scripture. He quotes passages from Deuteronomy. In fact, Nehemiah in his book will quote from 12 different books of the Old Testament. Nehemiah knows his scripture and God's word shapes his prayer. It shapes his thinking. It shapes his approach to leaning into the work of restoration. Nehemiah prays. 
I think so often when something tough hits my life, I pray for a quick fix. I pray for a simple solution. I pray for something speedy so I don't have to feel the pain. But Nehemiah, he prays the awesomeness of God. He confesses his sin and he prays through scripture. And it isn't till four months of praying that, that he then develops a plan um, saturated in God's word and says, please give me favor with the king. He doesn't ask anything till he's done worshiping and confessing and praying through scripture. Do you know what one of the coolest details of this passage is to me? Is that as Nehemiah takes that four months to pray, God's working something miraculous that he doesn't even know about. Remember, we talked about the letters that were sent back in Ezra chapter 4. Well, more letters are sent back and forth. And eventually, King Artaxerxes said, let's search the royal archives. Let's see what previous decrees have been made about Jerusalem. And during that four months that Nehemiah is praying, the the royal administrators and the scribes are, are combing through the royal archives and they find a decree by King Darius a decree that said that never should the work stop in Jerusalem, that no one should ever hinder it. In fact, King Darius says that if anyone stops the work in Jerusalem, then a wooden beam should be taken from their house and they should be impaled on it for all to see. All this is happening behind the scenes so that when Nehemiah goes four months later to the king, and asks for permission to go to Jerusalem, the king's heart and mind have been softened to accept his request. We've said many times here at the chapel that prayer precedes movement. And here in Nehemiah, prayer leads to restoration. Nehemiah asked Nehemiah wept. Nehemiah prayed. And then he accepted God's invitation to join in the work of restoration. How might we accept God's invitation to join in the work of restoration? As I considered that this week, I I know that the only way that we can truly join in the work of restoration if we understand how we have been restored. See, Jesus was not unlike Nehemiah. Jesus left the comfort of his throne to enter the ruins of earth. He left the glory of heaven to meet the ridicule and mockery of a world that would not accept him. He left his father's riches To pay the penalty of our sins, not with money, but with his blood, with his death. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus did these things. He asked his father, he wept, and he prayed. And as I thought about that this week, there was part of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that stood out to me in a new way. 
See, Jesus prayed in Matthew chapter 26 in the night before he was arrested, in the day before his crucifixion, he said, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup. Nehemiah was a cup bearer. The king didn't want to die. King Artaxerxes didn't want to die. And so he made Nehemiah try that wine every time to make sure that it wouldn't kill him. But you know what our king did? Our king took the cup. The cup of death. The cup of crucifixion. The cup that we rightly deserve to drink from. And he drank it. He took our death so that we could have life. Jesus is our ultimate restorer. He is the one in whom we find restoration. And just like he did with Nehemiah, he is inviting each of us to join in his work of restoration that we would ask questions saturated with restoration, that we would learn to weep over the things that he weeps for, and that we would spend the time praying, praying the awesomeness of God, praying for the forgiveness of our sins, and praying scripture so that we might join in his awesome work. Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we are excited to help you connect to Christ and His community. Have a blessed day.